Hey, what's up all you cool cats and kittens? It's John Bodeman here today with Splash of Cinema. Today we're going to be ep- covering episode 12, the best picture winners of the 2010s. How you doing today, Pete? I'm doing all right, man. Uh, I finished Succession over the weekend, uh, which is now my new favorite show, uh, HBO. So hopefully we can talk about that later on the pod. I think you'd like it a lot. Uh, popular circles and critical circles love it alike. So it's my new favorite show. And I started The Undoing, actually, uh, on HBO. So I'm just becoming an HBO head. Uh, I'm pretty Yeah, if you if you need to talk to Pete about HBO shows, uh, he's the expert. Apparently, I think today the show of discussion we're going to be talking about is WandaVision. Um, what we missed four? Ep- we haven't covered it in about four episodes, three episodes, I think. We haven't covered episode six, seven, or eight. Um, just a wild show. It's it's taken so many twists and turns. It it's hard to cover this without spoiling it, just because all I can really say is it goes in so many different directions. I think marvel's doing things it's never done before and maybe establishing some new possibilities for the marvel universe um and i think wandavision's a really good first step already we're seeing towards this trend of uh, marvel shows that are going to start dropping on streaming services i i thought it was crazy how about you pete yeah i mean uh i never read the comics or anything uh but i watched this i watched episode eight with my friends who did and they picked up so many more things than me. And I, I felt kind of alone in that sense, but nonetheless, it's entertaining as hell. Uh, you can definitely see the CGI being implemented uh, and the budget that Marvel has in these latest episodes. They're using, they're using a lot of it uh, to good degree. And I like how they're focusing a lot on characters, even if they're not wander vision, you know, You'll see when you watch it. We don't really want to spoil anything here, but it gets pretty crazy. And I'm looking forward to episode nine for sure. Yeah, my biggest, like, my favorite part of the show, actually, my favorite performance was not Wanda or Vision throughout the first couple episodes. I really like Catherine Hahn as, like, that side character. Um, I think she brings a lot of, like, life and color to the show. And I love how she's becoming, like, even more of a major player on the show um, as time goes on. I think that that was a really great casting choice by by uh, the Marvel execs, and it's paid off really well. Um, it seems like both Marvel both Marvel heads and just normal people are really enjoying this show. Um, I also really like that it's played on so many different sitcom styles. Like the one episode reminded me a lot of like Modern Family, how they do like the takes right to the screen, like it's like uh, breaking the fourth wall or whatever. I think the episode's actually called Breaking the Fourth Wall. Um, and you know, since episode one, the shows moved up in eras from like the fifties to the sixties to the seventies and the, you know, the costuming changes and the set changes are all kind of brilliantly reflect reflective of that. Um, and I appreciate that a lot. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's maybe the most exciting thing on TV right now, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like this is the Mandalorian for me, pretty much. Uh, I find myself going to the TV every Friday and watching this. Uh, and you know, I'm looking forward to the n- new Marvel stuff. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier drops in March. Uh, there's some more stuff coming, and I'm pumped for what Disney Plus, Marvel, and Lucasfilm have on deck. Uh, super excited. Yep, same goes here, Pete. Um, 
So that's WandaVision, the latest three episodes, a lot going on. If you haven't started the show yet, uh, I think we've said this before, it's a really quick watch. Honestly, the episodes range from like 20 to 30 minutes a piece, um, discounting the last one. And there's eight episodes so far. It, it releases every Friday on Disney+. Plus. Um, but obviously now, all the episodes that have come out, you can access them on Disney+. Plus. So uh, let us know what you guys think. It's, it's a really good show, so get into it. Uh, we're going to cover a lot today. Uh, just in honor of this upcoming Oscars and awards season, um, we want to give you kind of a recap of the past decade in Best Picture winners, the, the films that have been deemed the best of the year by the Academy Awards, which is the most prestigious award show in American film. Um, so that means we'll be covering 10 movies today, all very uh, critically well-received in by that circle, at least. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here today, and I say we just get right into it. The first film we're going to cover is the 2011 Best Picture winner, which is a 2010 film, um, and that is The King's Speech. It also won awards for Best Actor for Colin Firth, Best Director for Tom Hooper, and Best Original Screenplay, David Seidler. The plot is the story of King George um, the Sixth, his impromptu ascension to the throne of the British Empire in 1936, and the speech therapist who helped the unsure monarch overcome his stammer. Directed by Tom Hooper, written by David Seidler, starring Colin Firth, Joffrey Rush, and Helena Bonham Carter. Um, and we just want to put it out there. This movie is free to watch on Pluto TV. If you do know what that is, it is a streaming service um, and it's free. I think it could be a little dicey and it might have some ads, but, you know, I'm sure people out there watch Pluto and for some reason this movie's on it. So go for it. Um, Pete, what are your thoughts on uh, the King's speech? Yeah, uh, thanks for doing that quick ad read there for Pluto TV. Uh, you know, I've never heard of that, but you convinced me before the episode that people actually use it. So even if you don't want to use Pluto TV, please contact us to watch this movie. We will refer you to Pluto TV if you contact us. Uh, but uh, no, the King's speech, uh, I, I, I love this film. Uh, I'm a big fan of these old monarchy stories. Uh, like I've mentioned before, I like The Crown. Uh, I actually watched this one with my mom just because she is a big fan of these older stories uh, featured around the British monarchy. And I like how it's a figure who isn't really that polarizing in a historical sense, uh, George VI. Uh, obviously, he was there before Elizabeth. It is Elizabeth's father, so he has some status in that respect. But it's really cool to get the lens into it uh, in this one with fantastic production design, I have to say, uh, as well as performances. Colin Firth gives a performance of a lifetime and a best actor win that I think is really deserving. Uh, he puts forth a great performance as well as Hell in the Bottom Carter. And, you know, it's crazy to think that Tom Hooper made Cats after making this, you know, it's it's all over the place, man. Yeah, I just don't believe it. Yeah. Um, the King's speech to me. It's not the strongest movie of the year for 2010. I personally preferred The Social Network. Um, and that's a big debate, right? The Social Network, should it have beaten The King's Speech? In my opinion, absolutely. But I did love The King's Speech, and it's definitely worth a watch. Um, as Pete mentioned, the performances are outstanding, um, which is pretty typical for a Best Picture winner. 
even if it's maybe not the best film of the year, clearly critics love something about it. And I think the performances are, you know, outstanding. They stand out a lot. Um, just aided by a screenplay that, as we said, did win best original screenplay. And and I think um, that was that was pretty well deserved. Um, the, it's about the the kind of underdog king, the guy that's forced into a position um, and he has a stuttering problem. So you kind of have to write that into the screenplay. And I thought that they worked it into that in a genuine way. And it kind of shows the role of the speech therapist, which you wouldn't think is an important role in most monarchies. <laughs> But that's a really important role in this monarchy, giving the British people hope at a uh, a dark time. You know, it's, it's before World War Two. Um, there's a lot to worry about. And with all those things in mind, I thought that this film captured what I think the actual circumstances would have been like the actual time period very well. It's it's a super well done film, not my favorite film of the year, but I recognize its success and um i do applaud the film i think that you will definitely learn a lot from this movie if you watch it yeah uh i agree with you with your point that i the social network is better than this film uh and i enjoyed the social network more than this film uh for various reasons but nonetheless the king's speech is is a great film uh i think it i think it caters itself more towards the older clientele you know, just deal with the subject matter. And it, it's a little slow moving uh, just because it does feature this British monarchy at this time. A lot of properties that come out d- around this time uh, are slow moving. And, you know, we we appreciate that. But, you know, if you're looking for like big flashy stuff, this, this isn't the movie. Uh, like you said, it's just a very well done movie uh, that I think is a great best picture winner for uh, 2011 for sure. Yeah, and, and I totally see why the critics gave it gave it to this movie. Um, you did reference the age thing, which I just realized that's like really important. What would they rather give a biopic uh, award to? Would they give it to the guy that they learned about growing up, kind of this underdog hero for one of America's like biggest allies, father of Queen Elizabeth? Or do they give it these critics who are, you know, our parents' ages? Or do they give it to the the inventor of Facebook, something that they've all kind of... I mean, they've all jumped on the train at this point, but back then it was just kind of starting and uh, it was on the rise. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's a really polarizing figure in contrast to King George VI, who's, as Pete said, not a polarizing figure at all. Um, It's really just, he's just a genuinely good guy trying his best. And that's what the film shows. Whereas the social network, there's a lot more conflict. Um, Anyway, yeah, so that's the big debate. I'm sure you guys, most of our listeners are in the 18 to 20 range, so they would probably all agree that Social Network is the better movie. But yeah, great Best Picture winner. I'll just get right on to the next one because I think we're probably done talking about it, unless you have anything else to say, Pete. So the next is the Best Picture winner for 2012. Another kind of older type film, has an older feel, a tribute to the silent films of old Hollywood. Um Written and directed by Michael Hazanvicius, and this is a French film, so excuse me if I don't pronounce the names correctly, but stars Jean Dujardin, Bernice Bejo, and John Goodman. Um, and Jean Dujardin won Best Actor for this. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Costume Design, and Best Score, five Oscars, that's a lot. And the plot is an ego, 
maniacal film star develops a relationship with a young dancer against the backdrop of Hollywood's silent era. Um, this film's available on net- Netflix. I would consider this a silent film, although it's not silent the whole way through. I One of my favorite parts of this film was the slight introduction of noises at various points, um, which are, you know, as you're watching it, you kind of want it to be a silent film. Like the noises are unwelcome. They're unwelcome to the main character. Whenever there's noise, it seems to be that there's conflict. Um, it's clear that the main character, you know, he's he's not up to date with the times he's he's not okay with the changing times and he's trying to hold on to these this era of hollywood that's changing these silent films um i couldn't help but smile throughout this movie i i, th- I just thought it was really lighthearted most of the way um i love the whole silent film feel i i think it's really comedic in a sense how they'll have the big words on the screen like at constant times <laughs> um and you have to read them and kind of interpret how the characters should say them um this was another, I would say, week. This was a week year for movies. Um, so if you see the artist, you might think mm, it might not be that great. How did this film win Best Picture? You have to put it in context of the year. Within the year, it was honestly the Best Picture winner, in my opinion. Um, and I'm not disappointed with with its awards. I think for the type of film that it did, it, it was kind of a French film. It was really revolutionary and um, a very interesting production design which i appreciated yeah uh, i mean it would seem on its surface that this seems a little dated and you know old because because it is uh i mean it's a silent film in black and white but i think the story really carries it uh you really develop a sort of liking for the protagonist the actor and you can see that you know he doesn't like these talking movies he's comfortable with his success and his success can be attributed to his silent movie career and how successful he was. And, you know, it's it's like this old take on Hollywood. We see this year after year. Uh, it's this guy, he's a prominent figure, and the times are changing, and it's hard for him to adjust to that. And, you know, I love the relationship that he has with the female character in this as well. Uh, you know, they're kind of working oppositely. You know, he starts as prime, he's degrading. She's at her lows. She wants to get up. And you know, it's cool to see that relationship throughout the film. Uh, you know, it's kind of predictable where it's going at times. But aside from that, uh it was super pleasing watch, like you said, very easy to watch at a relatively short runtime too. Uh and yeah, uh it was a week year in movies. So I understand why this did win as many awards as it is, but you know, nonetheless, it's a four-star film for me, for sure. Yeah, to me, it, it I kind of got this sense that it's it was a rom-com in a way, although it's not classified as that in a genre. To me, it definitely felt like a rom-com. I mean, it's 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 considered a comedy drama, but the the romance is what uh, leaves you with intrigue throughout the film and and kind of builds suspense. You're wondering if it's ever going to happen. Um, at various points throughout the film, they both have different partners. That's pretty indicative of a normal rom-com. Um, and yeah, they it's it's kind of beautiful in a sense how they aid each other's careers and how they prop each other up. Um, when he has all the power in the industry, he helps her starlet kind of grow. And when, she, when he is no longer relevant, she maybe brings him back to relevance a little bit. Um, and when, as I said, the thing I most appreciated about this film is that when sounds or dialogue is actually used, it's used effectively. It's not overused. It's used at the right times. And um, 
And I think the screenplay was really well done, even though it's a silent film. So there's basically no screenplay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, And, you know, this is one of my favorite endings that I've seen in a while, honestly. You know, it has that old time uh, dance scene, kind of like Gene Kelly and stuff like that. It's kind of nostalgic in that sense. But then, like you said, with the dialogue, there's some dialogue at the end of the movie. And you can kind of tell why our protagonist was so against these uh, audio movies, you know, and, uh, you know, it's I, I like I've said before, this was a very pleasing watch and I'm glad I watched it because, you know, this is a movie that I wouldn't normally watch just because, you know, I did hear it was black and white and silent. But I mean, I'm glad I did. Uh, the artist was definitely a delight. So that's uh, 2011's The Artist, Best Picture winner in 2012. And we're just going to keep on moving um, to one of my favorite Best Picture winning films of the past decade, Argo. Another true story um, written by Chris Terrio and based on a book by Tony Mendez and an article by Joshua Bierman. The plot is acting under the cover of a Hollywood producer, scouting location for a science fiction film. CIA agent launches a dangerous operation to rescue six Americans in Tehran during the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. Um, And it stars Ben Affleck, Brian Cranston, Alan Arkin, John Goodman. And it won Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Um, You know, it's a powerful story, the the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. Um, One of the most important international events in the past century just because it's basically one of the primary reasons for U.S. Middle East relations today and how they are. Um, I'll give you a quick backstory. So the United States had a a pro-U.S. Shah in power in, in, in Iran, okay? And the Iranian people didn't like him, um, bec- partly because he was pro-U.S. and they didn't like a lot of the stuff the United States was doing. Basically, the guy gets cancer. He gets overthrown. The United States... Um, has him extradited to the U.S. where he can, you know, live out his remaining years in safety. They didn't want that. They wanted him back where they would have presumably killed him, right? We had a, um, at the time, we had a U.S. embassy in Iran. They stormed the embassy and essentially took a bunch of hostages. And with the help of some people from Hollywood, I think that's so random, uh, we decided to get the hostages out, six of them at least, Um and kind of this daring escape attempt with a lot with lots of suspense. And um, I like to think that the film captured that really realistically. It is a... Uh, I like that it's a true story. And I think that they did the true story justice. Um, this is, ben, you know, Ben Affleck directing. I think that's so cool. He wrote and directed... Or he, he directed and starred in this film. He, he turns in a great performance. Um you know, as we said, the screenplay won an award for best adapted screenplay. Of course, it's based on a book that was very well received critically as well. And um, yeah, just every element of this film for me kind of comes together. It might not be technically the best film, but it's it's one of these like heartwarming stories that carries through. Um, and it's it's an action film in the sense there's lots of crazy moments and, and lots of crazy suspense. It, it keeps you on edge. I really enjoy Argo. Yeah, uh, there's there's phenomenal tension throughout the movie, uh, just with these six characters who you know never thought that they'd be in this situation, but and you know it's it's I like how the film develops them 
and gives them a, a backstory too, uh, which a lot of films fail to do. They focus more on the plot and they don't really get into the characters. But you see uh, the motivations and the lives of all of them in a sense, especially with Affleck's character, uh, with that whole side plot with his family and you know him, the relationship with him and his son. And, you know, this is a movie that I feel like Oliver Stone would do, right? It's like, you know, it's these historical dramas. But, you know, I like how Ben Affleck did this. This is very different for him. And uh, he he developed a great cast as well. Brian Cranston does a great job in the movie. Uh, various actors as well sprinkled through. John Goodman. Alan Arkin's phenomenal. He got a nomination for this. I love him as an actor. He's phenomenal. And... It's just a very interesting story. Like you said, this was something I hadn't learned about in uh, high school or in my education in history class. But, you know, I'm glad that they put it to film and it definitely worked. Yeah, and it worked to a T. Um, it, it, it was my favorite movie of that year, I think. So, um, yeah, it just deserved everything it got. Argo is a pretty great movie for almost everyone who watches in one sense. It's, it's kind of this thriller. Um, in another sense, it's, it's a history lesson, which is something that I tried to uh, convey, uh, in the first little segment of the review. So check out Argo. Uh, I don't know if I said this, but it is available on HBO max. If you have that platform, if not reach out to us and we'll give you streaming service. All right. So the next film we're going to cover is, 2012's 2013- 2014's Best Picture winner, sorry, released in 2013. It's 12 Years a Slave. Uh, it's directed by Steve McQueen, a screenplay by John Ridley, and it's based off the autobiography 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northrup. It stars Chiwetel Ejiofor, Michael Fassbender, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, Brad Pitt, and Paul Dano in supporting roles. And on top of Best Picture, it won for Best Supporting Actress for Lupita Nyong'o and Best Adapted Screenplay, and it is currently available on Hulu, and the plot reads, In the antebellum United States, Solomon Northrup, a free black man from upstate New York, is abducted and sold into slavery. Uh, this this movie it can be hard to watch at some times, and you know, I think that's a testament to what Steve McQueen did with this movie. Uh, he, he gave a fantastic historical lesson just like argo uh and put some really true emotion to, into it uh from the shooting from the production design and even the performances uh this is one of the best supporting actress oscars that i believe was granted uh in the past 10 years for lupita Nyong'o. she's another level in this movie and this is what really got her started uh, as well as chiwetel Ejiofor. i think he goes unsaid just because of Nyong'o's un- performance in this uh, phenomenal performance as well and you know it's it's crazy that at this time something like this could happen and, and you know it's kind of disturbing in that sense and you're thinking throughout the whole film you know this man got ripped away from his family his job he was successful all because he was black and you know that's just insane to me and this film does a great job of making the villains bad and making the heroes heroic yeah, this film it needed to be put out there, um, and it's it's hard to watch. It's hard to get through, but it's an extremely powerful film, and it's extremely relevant too with the times today, and just how people are treated and affected. Um, yeah, I I love that 
Lupita Nyong'o kind of got her start to this film because she's a fabulous actress. But I also love that Steve McQueen finally got some recognition. He's been doing some... He's a really incredibly consistently good director, in my opinion. Um, this year, he released five movies. The Lovers, the uh, Small Axe Anthology, uh, including Lover's Rock, among others. That was, you know, very well received. I loved his film Hunger. This, is this though, tops the Steve McQueen films for me. Um, and, you know... This guy's British, so he's he's kind of capturing an American moment in time. But I thought that that outsider kind of p- point of view was was really you know unique and it worked. Um, it's this isn't really a political film at all. It's just an emotionally powerful film that I think is extremely re- realistic of some of the brutality and just um, you know terrible behavior that had no consequences um, during this time period. Um, yeah, your protagonist just gets beaten down over and over, but he's extremely re- resilient. And um, a lot of the people in this film are extremely resilient. Ex- extreme. This film carries a lot of emotional weight. Honestly, um, if if you if you can't handle some some like emotional brutality or or even physical brutality, this might not be the film for you. Um, but for critics and people that have an appreciation for American history. This is, this was the film of the year. Um, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that it only won three Oscars because there were a lot of great elements in this film that might've just might've garnered this some more, but, but 12 years of slave, that, it's it for me. It's, it, it's a f- fantastic movie. Yeah. I also like how uh, McQueen focuses on the narrative of Northrop, but he also captures the environment that he's in and the circumstances as well. And the changing of the times, because I mean, he was a slave for 12 years and I think the film really does a great job of showing that progression uh, from these anti-slavery because, you know, through there's a character in the film who's played by Brad Pitt, who is just so different from every other character that's been introduced up to that point. And I think that really does a great job. It kind of has a parallel of, you know, the mentalities of people, uh, back then uh, as he's working north uh, to get back to his home state in New York. Yep. I, I love Brad Pitt. I love Paul Dano. I think Michael Fassbender was outstanding. Um, normally I love Michael Fassbender, but he got me to hate him in this movie. And for that, I applaud him. Um, yeah. To, like I said before, there's not much more I can say on this movie, but it's, it's a fantastic film. Check it out on Hulu. And our next film is Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I watched this film last night, so my review is very fresh. It is, the plot reads, a washed up superhero actor attempts to revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production written and directed by Alejandro G. Inaritu, stars Michael Keaton, Zach Galifianakis, and Edward Norton, and it won Best Picture and Best Director. Birdman... Birdman was insane. Just really crazy. You never know what to expect. Um, it's kind of shot and like it has that like one shot vibe where the, that camera is following the actor around in this film, um, which 1917 did last year. But but Birdman was was the first one to do it. The first big film to do it. And in that sense, I think the cinematography was was insane. Um, there was so much symbolism in this movie. And I just want to 
quick talk about something that I was reading about the ending scene last night. I won't spoil it for you, but the ending scene is, um, it was one of my favorite parts of the film. And originally, for some reason, the ending scene was supposed to be Johnny Depp leaping out of a, a Pirates of the Caribbean poster and then coming to real life as Jack Sparrow, which you know, if you watch the film, you might see it makes some kind of sense, but no, it didn't make any sense. And the ending, which, I, as I said, was, I think, perfectly captured the film, was like a last minute rewrite. And I think that's crazy how some of these movies can change and then go on to win Best Picture just based on one or two quick decisions. Um, but overall, this is this is a great film. I think maybe a limitation is that some people might watch it and and say i don't understand it or i think that they just kind of threw some stuff together and pretended that it was deep and then slap a bad review on it i think that this film genuinely was deep and don't get me wrong when i say i think every single part of this movie was intentional there's a lot of like deep kind of easter eggs in this movie references to past playwrights um it is kind of an old Hollywood movie in a sense. It, it's it's about the changing of the times, which, as we've noticed, is kind of a theme throughout these Best Picture winning films. Um, it's like a past comic book, big grossing actor superhero trying to prove that he's relevant and actually knows a lot about art. Um, and, it, you know, I thought it was funny how it references like Marvel and Robert Downey Jr. And he's like, I'm way more talented than Robert Downey Jr. And he's making so much more money than me. Um, this film's about it's about success and uh, how you perceive your worth to society. It's about relevance. There's a lot of uh, cool, interesting stuff going on here. It's very dark at times, but it's also, it's a comedy. Um, So it's a dark comedy. I'd classify as it. And I think it, it plays that genre to a T very well. Yeah. uh, You know, this, this can kind of be reflected in some current actors lives. You know, a lot of these, marvel actors are trying to get out of the mold like i know chris evans is starting to do more dramatic stuff and so it's cool to see that not that it's exactly like what is in birdman but you know he's trying to be more artsy and become more of an artist so to say and he's getting away from the big budget stuff and I, you know i like how they placed it in new york as well uh there were some great scenes uh there's this one where he's just in his underwear running through Times square and you know i think that's it's funny in a sense, like you said, it is comedic at times. And, uh, that, that scene, I read this somewhere that everyone around him just didn't know that they were being filmed. Obviously there were some extras that had some lines like, Hey, Birdman and stuff, but a lot of those extras didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I'm just imagining Michael Keaton as I'm walking in times square, just running around in this underwear. It, It makes me laugh a little, but, uh, Besides Keaton, I mean, the performances in this are phenomenal. Uh, Zach Galifianakis gives a great comedic performance as sort of this producer that just wants everything to go right all the time. Producer slash lawyer. Yeah, he's he's everything in this film. And, you know, there's just so much chaos around this production. A lot of it uh, fed on by Edward Norton, who gives a great performance, as he always does. Emma Stone, Naomi Watts. Andrea Risenbro. I mean, there's so many phenomenal actors in this movie. And, you know, Alejandro Gianniritu, he's he's great. His stuff's phenomenal. And, you know, you expect it, but this is a new level. Uh, definitely a five-star film for me. Uh, just 
for everything from the cinematography, the performances, the script is phenomenal as well, too. And it was filmed in the St. James Theater, which I thought was really cool. Everything in this was filmed in New York in one theater. And, you know, I think that's really a testament to, like, how condensed this movie is, yet how much it has you thinking, for sure. Yeah, and, and it, it, it kind of explains there's a conflict between the big budget Hollywood people and the New York play scene. Um, and that conflict does exist in real life. And I think it, that it plays that difference very comedically, um, mainly between Edward Norton and Michael Keaton. Their characters clash throughout the film. That's probably the main conflict. Um, and there's a lot of conversations about the differences between playwrights and Hollywood, where the money is um, and what is true art. And I think that that's an interesting debate to consider when watching this movie. Um, yeah, the, the theater setting, though, it was really genuine. It felt really genuine. I mean, the like anxiety and unease, the tension between a lot of these scenes is just amplified as he'll go like from room to room. And it's just like an extremely crowded hallway. And as he's running through, somebody else is yelling at him because they need something. It, it actually reflects what I think the environment of maybe a director... <laughs> Uh, writer and actor of a play would be experiencing on the nights before opening night it felt like a real tech week to me um you know it's very demanding it's very stressful this guy's got his whole in in his eyes he's got his whole life on the line um out of this desire to be viewed as genuine um yeah and i think that's really kind of powerful i think this is kind of an expose on life a little bit to me it felt like um Emma Stone has some really cool, like deep conversations on maybe what it means to be relevant or even if that's a thing. Um, yeah, Birdman, I did just watch it, so I'm kind of high on the movie a little bit. But to me, it represented filmmaking at its finest. And, and I think that it's kind of a perfect example of the craft. Um, while it might not be my most favorite movie of all time, I think technically it's one of the best films I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just going to echo everything you said there. Uh, if you haven't seen a movie from the 2010s, I'd give Birdman a watch. That should definitely be at the top of your list. Uh, the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, as it's otherwise known. It has a little uh, parenthetical uh, title there. So give it a watch, Birdman. Uh, so we're going to move on to next year's, the next year's Best Picture winner. Uh, it's a 2015 film entitled spotlight and this is the plot reads the true story of how the boston globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local catholic archdiocese shaking the entire catholic church to its core uh directed by tom mccarthy written by josh singer and tom mccarthy it stars mark ruffalo another michael keaton performance back-to-back years rachel mcadams leave schreiber among others and on top of Best Picture, it won Best Original Screenplay. And Spotlight is currently available on Netflix. Uh, your thoughts on Spotlight, John? I know it's a it's a it's a super powerful film. Yeah, Spotlight was um to me a really awesome example of like one of these types of investigative journalism films, as they try to uncover these secrets and they're interviewing a lot of people and there's people that haven't come forward for twenty years. Just because it's true, I think it's a really sad movie. Um, just because it explores, you know, a, a famous example of his hypocrisy in one of 
the world's oldest institutions and supposedly most moral institutions. Um, and just on that note alone, I think it's a really important film to watch. But, but on top of that, just as a film, the elements, they were all there. Um, oddly enough, I really like the score in this movie. When I wrote it, I, I, I noted that. I think that the music carries forward a lot of scenes that might be otherwise lacking. Um, it's hard. It might be hard to do these films, you know, these, these investigative journalist pieces, the screenplay has to be like really on point and you have to find ways of introducing tension throughout a movie instead of it just like being fact finding and information gathering, you know, there's conflict. Some of the Catholic, uh, you know, archbishops and priests don't want things uncovered. So of course they're going to go behind their back and threaten consequences. Um, and so you might, think spotlight's just a film about investigative journalism why would i need to watch it i, I hope i just explained to you why you need to watch it um plus it's been you know it's been granted the status of best film of the year by the academy award so i'd say that alone should garner a watch for you um i think pete you said it was on netflix so it should be pretty easy to watch yeah uh like you mentioned this is actually my favorite movie that deals with investigative journalism uh close second in zodiac but uh you know performances all around that garner attention uh especially from mark ruffalo he has one breakout uh scene in this which is it, it's just incredible acting he's he's one of my favorite actors working uh and you know set in boston as well that's important to note uh deeply catholic uh irish catholic area and you know it's crazy that this is this story is true and it's it's kind of embarrassing as well uh, like you mentioned for the catholic church and you see that as the story goes on uh with even interviews with former priests and bishops and such and you know being someone who did grow up catholic and then watching this it's it's kind of haunting in a sense you know knowing knowing that this was going on behind the scenes of you know a religion that i had followed for say 15 years and you know, even my mom, who who I watched this with, we were we were extremely moved by this, and I think that has to do with the script. Like you were saying, it's it's a it's a really sound script that, you know, does have its breakouts, sort of Aaron Sorkin esque breakouts throughout, but you know, just phenomenal dialogue throughout. Yeah, I got that vibe from it too. Um, I think Michael Keaton, yeah, two years in a row as the best picture winning film, like one of the main actors. I think that that's cool. Um, you said this film was kind of embarrassing for the Catholic Church. I do agree. I also think it's just absolutely damning. Um, there's absolutely no excuses for what happened in this, the, the kind of massive cover-up. I mean, it took a lot of people to cover this up. Um, and this is one of those films that it never has a happy ending. You, of course, want them to uncover the information and, and maybe write some big expose on, on this huge hypocrisy scandal. But as that gets unveiled, you just get more and more depressed about the subject matter. Um, and as more and more gets uncovered, it gets more and more damning. Um, this is not a feel-good movie in any sense, but it, but it's certainly moving. And I think afterwards, I it kind of gave me a, maybe a different outlook on life and, you know, how I should approach people and how I should think about things. Um, because a, a lot of the a lot of the bad things and the conflict that's uncovered throughout this film is, is fueled by ignorance and you know, naivety. Um, and it's important to resi resist those things. 
Yeah, so uh, if you have anything else to say about Spotlight, John. All right, so we're going to move on to uh, 2017 awards, a 2016 film, uh, La La Land. So La La Land, uh, uh, obviously I'm kidding. That was the biggest Steve Harvey moment that the Academy Awards has ever seen. Uh, We're going to cover Moonlight. So... The plot of Moonlight reads, a young African-American man grapples with his identity and sexuality while experiencing the everyday struggles of childhood, adolescence, and burgeoning adulthood. Uh, Written and directed by Barry Jenkins, although uh, the script is derived from a Terrell Alvin McCraney play uh, in Moonlight, Black Boys Turns Blue. Uh, It stars Mahershala Ali, Naomi Harris, Trevante Rhodes, Janelle Monet, as well as Ashton Sanders, and Andre Holland is in it as well. And on top of being Best Picture, it won Best Supporting Actor for Mahershala Ali and Best Adapted Screenplay. And it has been available on Netflix for a while now, and it it's probably one of the best things on Netflix, and it is currently on. So your thoughts on Moonlight, John? Yeah, um, super young breakout cast. Um Moonlight is the coming of age story to a T. It's definitely a different way of telling the coming of age story. It has a lot of like spiritual moments and a lot of symbolism, which I think is unique to a lot of these best picture winning films. They're really deep in a sense. Um, And this could be the deepest one of them all. Um, To to me, Moonlight's a five-star film. Uh, I think it's pretty technically perfect. Mahershala Ali was fantastic in his performance. And although he's, best supporting actor in this which i think is a fair designation because he didn't have a lot of screen time he's the guy that stands out um he's the you know unlikely father figure and in kind of this world of drugs and violence at times you see that there there's normal people you know there's good in it and there's bad in it um and you really tend to sympathize with the main character of the film he's he's a very like loving person he's very understanding and, you know, life kind of tears him down throughout, um, but he keeps getting back up. There's This is kind of a story about resilience. It's a story about change. It's a story about, you know, coming of age, like I said. And I, and I think that it's, it's, and it's, it's an incredibly powerful movie. I feel like I'm reiterating a lot of the things that I've been saying for a lot of these movies. It is getting hard because, you know, these are all outstanding movies, critically. Um, but I do want to just say that I think Moonlight stands out above a lot of these. So if you're going to watch one, to me, it'd be Birdman or Moonlight. Later, we'll rank these films. But um, yeah, but yeah, it's Moonlight for me. Yeah, uh, I just want to echo everything you said. Uh, you know, the performances in this are phenomenal. Uh, I think Ashton Sanders, who is an actor who's uh, gaining a lot of rise currently, he's getting a lot more roles. This was his big breakout. And I think, along with Mahershala Ali, obviously, gives the best performance in the movie. And it's I love how the way this film is structured into three definitive acts. Because, you know, oftentimes we're debating where act shifts are and such. But Barry Jenkins makes that clear. And like you said, there there is a plot, but it's just moving along. And you follow the life of this kid. And no film really has done that i mean obviously boyhood did it over a 12 year period with the same actor but barry jenkins did it in a contained 
filming time, you know, and I think that's important to note because it did feel super truthful and these characters' performances were so consistent throughout. Uh, and, you know, a phenomenal score as well. Uh, Nicholas Bertel, he's one of my favorite composers working today. Uh, he did this along with Barry Jenkins' other film, If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think that really complements the film super well, especially in really intimate scenes with Chiron and Juan uh, in the film. And yeah, I mean, this is definitely one of the best films that's come out in 2010s, undeniably. I think a lot of critics agree on that, as well as popular circles. And, you know, I just thought it was funny when La La Land was announced as Best Picture winner uh, during that Academy Awards, because I, I just knew it wasn't true uh, after watching this film uh, compared to La La Land. Not taking anything away from La La Land, but, you know, this this is a top tier f- film for me. And honestly, probably top 25 film of all time for me. Yeah, Um and this is one of those films that critics across the world received the same. I, I, I don't think it was in question that this film deserved Best Picture for its year. Um, you mentioned the three parts, and I think that's a really interesting thing to mention. Uh, not a lot of films do that, but this film did it masterfully. Uh, the parts are Little, Chiron, and Black. Um, and it, those are all names given to the same character, to our main character. And that kind of reflects how he changes uh, compared to the world around him and how he changes with the world around him. Um, and in each of those chapters, there's various struggles and uh, references to other the other parts of the chapters. You know, characters carry through um, and characters change and grow. But but, you know, our, our main character, Chiron, changes and grows the most throughout this film. Um, it was very fluid to me, if I can use that word. It, it felt like fluidly beautiful. It's it covers a lot of deep films, uh, mainly identity there's a, there's a big element of sexuality covered in this film and masculinity, you know, what makes a man. Um, and, and I just like that it was never, it was never like moralizing or preachy, I guess I would say. Um, it's, it's not trying to like teach you anything or, or instill any sort of opinion in you, give you any persuasion as to whether or not you should sympathize with this character or not. I think you just naturally sympathize with the character. I mean, he's your protagonist. He's your main character. You see that this guy's just trying to struggle to find out who he is. And people hate on him for that. And and I think if everyone watched this film, it might make the world a better place. Um, might give people some more empathy because, you know, you might not hate on somebody for decisions that they, they can't control and decisions that they're trying to grapple with more than needing you to, to come in and yell at them for something that you don't even know what their life's about. Um, and that happens a lot in this movie. And that's some of the main conflict of this movie, this poor kid, but you watch him grow into a man. And, and that's really special. Yeah. And uh, it's important to note that this takes place in Liberty city, Miami, uh, which is a, which is a very, at the time uh, this takes place in the nineties and then progresses at the time in the 90s, it was it was a really bad area, uh, just with crime, drugs. Uh, the film deals heavily with addiction uh, with his mother, played wonderfully by Naomi Harris, uh, probably the biggest name going into the movie. Uh, Mershal Ali wasn't quite established as this big actor as he is today at the time of the filming. But yeah, and the, the writer of this, Terrell Alva McCraney, uh, he's just a phenomenal playwright of the 21st century. Uh, he, he was actually nominated last year for a Tony as well uh, for a play entitled Choir Boy. And a lot of his uh, 
plays deal with a black identity, uh, sexuality, and like you said, this masculinity, uh, whether you mask it or show it. Uh, and, you know, his masculinity progresses throughout this film, Chiron, and I think that's beautiful in a sense. And, you know, once the third act got there, I was like, whoa, like it, it just seems so different, you know? And you, you kind of want to fill in the pieces there for the times when Chiron is on screen and it's like offstage accent, so to say. And I just love how Barry Jenkins did it. Uh, one of my favorite shots from this is when he just washes his face. Uh, there's He does that three separate times in the film and everything from the color design, the score, the camera work during that is just so beautiful. And that's Moonlight for me. It's just beautiful. Yeah, this film gave me kind of a boyhood sense, um, but not filmed over 12 years. Um, and maybe even better than boyhood. So, you know, uh, I think that's funny. But yeah, I mean, you referenced the changing of the times and, and some of those like little scenes, like the, the face washing scene that are repeated over time. There's a lot of repetition in this film. Um, and Barry Jenkins, if you read about this film, really like to connect the different parts uh, via these like small tributes to each separate part. Um, and if you pay attention to this film, you'll notice that. But if you don't pay attention to this film, you'll think this is just a good movie. And it's it's aided by those small little scenes. No scene in this is accidental. Um, they're all intentional and they all work well. And then just my last point before we move on to the next film. I think that um, sometimes social justice films in general get flack when they win awards just because people think, oh, it's only winning an award because it's a social justice film. This film is an example of a social justice film in a sense that deserved everything that came to it because it's a technically and emotionally beautiful film. Um, and, and it was by no means in a weak year for movies. This was a pretty strong year for movies and it came out on top just because it was the best film. Um, our next film we're going to be covering is 2017 film or uh, yeah, 2017 film, which won best picture in 2018. Um, it also won best director for Guillermo del Toro, best score and best production design. It is the shape of water. So the plot reads at a top secret research facility in the 1960s, a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. Uh, written and directed by Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. Sorry, I do know how to pronounce his name. Um, also written by Vanessa Taylor and stars Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, and Michael Shannon. This film is available on Hulu, which I can tell you for a fact because I watched it on Hulu yesterday um, with Will Bodeman, who's been a previous guest on this podcast. So shout out to Will Bodeman. Uh, we watched The Shape of Water together. I have been a big fan of Guillermo del Toro um, since I started really getting into movies. If you haven't gotten a chance to check out Pan's Labyrinth, I think that is an, that's an amazing film. And I got a lot of those vibes from this movie. Um, you know, del Toro's, he's not, he's not new to the filmmaking industry. He's been directing films for 20 years. Um, they finally recognized him with a best picture and best director win for the shape of water. Well-deserved. It's, it's a unique story when it comes to these best picture winners. I think so far we've talked about all kind of like these serious films that are like technically beautiful. This one is, you know, very interesting. There's a lovemaking scene between a woman and a fish man. There is a musical number featuring a mute, a mute woman. Um, 
and there's an, a cat that gets eaten. And I think when I say just those three things, you might think, what? Like, this sounds like a half-star movie to me. Somehow, uh, they're all told at parts in the story where it makes sense. Um, I think that this film plays with conflict and suspense a lot very well. Um, to me, it's not Del Toro's best, and I don't even think it was the best of the year. But I would say that this is an overall good film. Um and I can see why it was recognized. Yeah, I, I agree with you when you say uh, this wasn't my best picture winner for that year. Uh, I'd have to look back and see, but it, it definitely wasn't. Uh, but yeah, it, on its surface, it does seem very weird. I, I will agree with you there. But there's a lot of emotionality packed into this movie. Uh, whether it's, you know, you even develop feelings for the fish man. Uh, and that, that kind of has to do with the fish man (laughs) the fish man uh but you know that kind of has to do with michael shannon's performance in this which is crazy michael shannon always plays a great villain and i think this is one of his best uh, along with nocturnal animals he's great in both of those but yeah uh like you said a fantastic story uh that only i think guillermo del toro could come up with you know he's someone who likes to implement these creatures and like supernatural monsters into his film and i think he does it great here uh set on a 1960s baltimore uh felt kind of like hairspray at some times for me just with the production design and everything i thought that was super well done a uh, great supporting performance from richard jenkins who got a nomination for this uh he's one of my favorite actors uh and you know i it was just a pleasing watch i'd say uh at times like you said it does get suspenseful and stuff but in the end, it was just an aesthetically pleasing movie, I'd say. Yeah, and it's a watch that appeals appeals to kind of everyone, unless you have some sort of moral inclination that you you hate a fic- a fictional uh, depiction of sex between a fish fish man and a woman, which is not graphically shown. It just shows, you know, what might be considered the lead up. Um, but yeah, you mentioned the setting, and that's something that stood out to me a lot when I watched it yesterday there were a lot of references to the time period and it was it was it's a period piece in a sense it's it has a lot of references to like the damn soviets or whatever which seems like it was accurate for the time um you know there's there's a scene in which this guy is painting ads and you know the ad company eventually prefers portrait or like uh pictures over the paintings i think that that's a important switch that happened at this time period um you know the costuming the building design, it, the architecture, it's all very indicative of the 1960s. And um, and I think that that's really cool. The second point I want to make, the reason that I think this film, to me, seemed a lot like Pan's Labyrinth is just like you said, Pete, Del Toro really likes to bring in these, you know, kind of weird, uh, fictitious, like animated, or not animated, um, like mystical creatures in with what was otherwise you know, a real life setting. So in Pan's Labyrinth, it's, he brings in like a fawn and this whole like labyrinth theme in with, you know, a young girl during the Spanish revolution. And this it's, you know, an older woman um, struggling to find her way as a, as a janitor at a, you know, weapons facility in cold war America. Um, so not only are these films set during periods of war, but, but I think the mystical creatures are a really cool directing tool. I think they add 
a kind of supernatural sense that helps you see the real situation a little clearer. Um, because th as the character, as the main character played by Sally Hawkins kind of grows and changes throughout this movie as she, you know, becomes more comfortable with herself and learns to be more confident about the world around her. Um, because she starts off this film so shy, I think that the creature is the reason that she becomes that way. Just as the creature is the reason that the little girl in Pan's Labyrinth becomes the way she does. Um, I got enormous similarities between those two movies. Sorry if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I think there's there's just a strong connection that I that I thought was the most important thing I saw in this movie there. But but the supernatural creature played off the character's emotions really well, although it has no dialogue. It was like it felt like the second main character in this movie. Yeah. Uh, on top of the creature not having dialogue, our main character doesn't have dialogue either. And, you know, I think I think that's crazy that it's it's so effective, whether it's communicated through Jenkins uh, dialogue in it or the camera work throughout uh, and these sort of like musical scenes, like you're saying, between the creature and our protagonist. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's the shape of water for me. Uh, if you do you have anything to add, John? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, bring up a quick letterbox review. I found um, really interesting. Uh, the most liked review on letterbox for this film is someone has finally dared to ask what if Lilo and Stitch was rated R? <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Um, this movie is a meme in a sense, just because of that sex scene between the two. <laughs> and that's all I thought about it going in. And I kept asking, I'm like, Will, when do you think this sex scene's going to happen? Like, <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, that's all I have to say on the movie, though. Yeah, I, I also want to bring up uh, the, cr the creature work and the prosthetics in this are phenomenal. I think Doug Jones is the actor who's under. Not the senator from Alabama. <laughs> No, different, different Doug Jones, but uh, he he's the actor under this. And, you know, I watched a behind the scenes thing of how long it took. And it was like eight hours every day for this costume, uh, which is crazy. And I think he does a great job of conveying the character, like you said, John, even though he doesn't speak. So big shout out to our costume art uh, actors out there. Uh, Doug Jones being one of the best of them. So we're going to move on to... 2018's Green Book, which won the 2019 Best Picture Oscar. And the plot reads, a working class Italian-American bouncer becomes the driver of an African-American classical pianist on a tour of venues through the 1960s American South. Uh, directed by Peter Farrelly, who did Dumb and Dumber, uh, change of pace there. Uh, written by Nick Valenlanga and Brian Hayes Curry. Uh, it stars Vigo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, and Linda Cardellini, as well as Sebastian Maniscalco. He is in a few scenes in this, which is important to note, uh, just because I love Sebastian Maniscalco. Uh, but on top of Best Picture, uh, this won another Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Mahershala Ali and Best Original Screenplay. And Green Book is currently available on Showtime. Uh, this is a film that deals heavily uh, with the times and it really incorporates the setting into its plot. Uh, it's this pianist who's well-renowned, uh, played by Mahershala Ali. True story to note also. Uh, and, you know, he is successful, but he's still an African-American living in America in the 1960s. 
and it deals with that and there's some themes of sexuality in this as well uh but and at times it does get comedic uh peter fairly he's had his fair share of comedy and i think that was sprinkled in really well uh to this plot which i think really focuses on friendship and overcoming differences uh which i think is honestly why it got the best uh picture win uh this is another one that wasn't really my favorite of the year i don't think it deserved best picture but in the end i i can see why it did uh it was very popular in popular circles so thoughts on green book john yeah um this is one of those films that when i talked about earlier when i talked about moonlight this is one of those kind of social justice films that that got some flack for being recognized um and i think that they seriously may have contributed to its best picture win um but I all just I do just want to note that at this point, Hollywood is is in love with you know Viggo Mortensen from Lord of the Rings still, and Mahershala Ali at this point has you know he's defined he's a very well established actor. They both turned in great performances playing off each other. It felt like a reverse Driving Miss Daisy in a sense to me. If you've ever seen that movie, um, it got some knack for being like a white savior movie, um, but I don't think that that's fair to call it that at all. Because who's the real savior in this movie? It's Mahershala Ali. He's the educated, you know, man that is teaching Viggo Mortensen about life and um, how you respond to things in certain situations, how to deal with grace and with ease um, and with poise. And um, I think that that was actually the most important lesson in this movie to me. And I didn't get any sense that this film was a white savior movie. Um, Just because it has a white character doesn't mean it needs to be considered a white savior movie. Um, yeah, once again, though, didn't think that this was the best movie of its year, but I did love, I did love Green Book in its own way. Um, it, it could have been, it could have been made better. I totally see how that, this film could have been made better. I think the screenplay was lacking in some areas, but I still consider this a four-star movie. Um, it's still technically very well movie. Love the, the period settings. Um, just the amount of places where they had to film and the amount of, you know, settings that they had to get right. I think that that's a, an achievement. Um, I love the, the symbol of the car driving around the country. Um, they were kind of tethered to the car and the car was their home in a sense. They had a lot of important conversations in the car. This is a screenplay heavy movie. It's an acting heavy movie and our two leading guys. Um, and I, I think that those things were what kind of carried the emotional weight of the film and, and gave it the oomph it needed to win the best picture award yeah uh, i mean if you're a fan of classical piano uh this is a great movie uh there's some great scenes of performances by dr shirley as he's known in the movie uh and yeah echoing everything john said uh i i'd say it's a it's a pleasing watch but at times like our other ones it, it can be hard to watch at times uh just because of uh the unjust sort of actions that are done against Mahershala Ali's character. It gets hard to watch at times, but uh, you're going to get that with these movies. Uh, It's a history lesson in some sense as well uh, that, you know, even if artists are not like us, but still talented, that doesn't mean we treat them poorly. Uh, And, you know, I I, I like how you mentioned the white savior as well, because this doesn't feel like that at all. Uh, You know, there's times Mahershala Ali is helping Viggo Mortensen not only with sort of this education of the times and 
you know, being more progressive about things, but he's also helping him in his personal life with his wife. And, you know, that scene where he writes the letter, I think that's really funny. And it does have some good comedy scenes sprinkled in uh, with a movie that can get dramatic at times, which I enjoyed. And I think this is, I think it's cool that Peter Farrelly did this as well. Cause you know, he's kind of been on those like John Candy movies throughout the nineties. So this is a change of pace for him. Like we saw with Todd Phillips and Joker. And I think he did it well, but yeah, uh, not my favorite movie of the year. I've said this and the screenplay at times is a little lacking. I'd agree with you there. Yep. Um, that's all I have to say on green book. Um, so we're going to move on to our last film that we're going to cover today. This film is the highest rated film on Letterboxd, which is the social media app that we both use to rate films and critique films. Um, it's in, insanely well received critically. This film kind of swept all the awards attention last year. It did win four Oscars um, for Best Picture, Best Director for Bong Joon-ho, Best Original Screenplay for Bong Joon-ho, Best Foreign Feature, which I think that Oscar also went to Bong Joon-ho. Um, a little background on Bong Joon-ho. He's been making films for years. It's not just like out of nowhere. And he's been making wonderful films for years, like great Korean films. Um and this was finally the Academy's time to recognize him. Parasite was really uniquely made movie, really well done. The plot is greed and class discrimination threaten the newly formed symbiotic relationship between the wealthy part family and the destitute Kim clan. Written and directed by Bong Joon-ho, stars Kang Ho-song, Kang Ho-song Lee Sun-kyun, and Yo Jong-cho. Um, and it's available on Hulu. This film was insane. It kind of felt like a korean tarantino film to me there's a lot of like quick intense episodes of violence um there's a definitely this like deep underlying theme of like class strife and and how people are treated um and this this family of what i would say is con men just kind of doing their best to make their way in the world and eventually um you know take advantage of this this rich korean family I loved, I loved Parasite in its own way. Um, I don't necessarily think it should be considered like one of the best films of all time. I actually think some of Bong Joon-ho's other stuff is better, but I, I totally understand why it got recognized um, last year for all these awards. It, it was a really uniquely made film, but but it, it's really uneasy. Um, I can say like my mom didn't like it, but but I liked it in its own sense. Um, and it touches on a lot of different genres at different points. And I think that that was really compelling. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a film that turns itself on its head halfway through. I don't want to spoil it in case you haven't seen Parasite. I mean, who hasn't seen Parasite up to this point? But there is a really monumental plot point that takes place and just turns what could be perceived as kind of a lighthearted drama in a sense into a thriller. And it gets kind of crazy. And that, that's one of the reasons why I love this film. Uh, it works from sort of comedy to drama to thriller so seamlessly uh, through these various plot points. And uh, I love the symbolism that's used in this movie. Uh, one of the biggest scenes is like this rainstorm that comes in. And, you know, this rich family who this poor family works for is just just hanging out in their house. You know, it's just another rainstorm. But then you see the, the, the poor family, the ones who's infiltrated their lives and see how it's affected them. Their whole house is flooded. 
you know, and I think that just stands to show what Bong Joon-ho is really wanting to communicate through this film, just class difference. And, you know, we need to, we need to acknowledge that. And, you know, people have it better than other people. And I think that works its way well through the film. And, you know, one of the most emotional endings I've seen in a while in this, uh, I think it's beautifully done. And I can really see Bong Joon-ho drawing off his old stuff into Parasite, uh, like with the comedy. I, I noticed a lot of things from Okja there. And like with the action scenes, Snowpiercer, there's just very... Bong Joon-ho's uh, arsenal of movies is phenomenal. Definitely give it a watch. Uh, one of the best international filmmakers we have working today, definitely. Yeah, I think it's cool that um, this film is, is a truly foreign film. And it won Best Picture at the Hollywood, you know, Academy Awards. That's an incredibly unique accomplishment. And I think that this spe- it speaks to the quality of the film and Bong Joon-ho as a whole. Um, I think he was also like the head judge at Cannes this year. So not only is he recognized on an American sense, but he's recognized internationally as one of the best directors in the world. Um, and it's time for people to start stepping up and realizing that. I think Parasite was that step. Maybe I can think of a handful or almost no films that are foreign and have actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture on top of Best Director and Best Screenplay. I think that's really cool. Um, I'm kind of fanboying out right now, but but let's be honest. Bong Joon-ho deserves the credit. Um, I actually thought 1917 was a better film for for 2020. Pete's shaking his head, but... But, you know, I'm going to say it because, you know, it's my podcast. I have a right to say, you know, what I, what I want. So do you, Pete. Um, we've said that for a bunch of these years so far. So it's not crazy that I'm saying it for this film. But but Parasite, when we do, when we do rank these films for Best Picture winners, it's going to rank near the top of my list. Um, I think 20, 2019 was an, a super strong year for movies. Um and I'm not, I'm not complaining at all. Parasite deserved what came. It was, it worked. Whatever Bong Joon-ho did, it worked. It was weird. I didn't know what was happening half the time, but it worked. Uh, so that was Parasite. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest films of the 21st century, if not all time. Uh, so we're going to rank these. All the films that we've covered. Uh, from the 2011 Academy Awards to the 2020 Academy Award Best Picture winners, we're going to rank them right now. Uh, we're going to go 10 to 1, and we're going to alternate between John and I. So if you have your list ready, John, uh, want to start us off with your number 10? I do have my list ready. Um, I did make it in preparation for this pod. I hope you have yours as well, Pete, because if you didn't, I would show a lack of preparedness. And as a professional, I would feel frustrated with you. I, I have mine ready. Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay, good. Good. So I'm going to start. My 10 is Green Book. Uh, my 10 as well is Green Book. Okay, easy. My nine is The King's Speech. My number nine is The Artist. Interesting. Interesting. My number eight is The Shape of Water. My number eight as well is The Shape of Water. My number seven is... The artist, but if I'm going to say it in its true French form, the artiste. Good good touch there. Uh, my number seven is The King's Speech. So our seven through tens, we've all covered the same four movies in our seven to tens. That's interesting. I think there's somewhat of a repertoire developing here. Um, my number six 
is Argo. My number six as well is Argo. Okay, interesting, interesting. I, I think this is when we're going to differ, though. Uh, the top five, for sure. My number five is Parasite. My number five is 12 Years a Slave. Mm. My number four is Spotlight. My number four is Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. My number three, the first of what I would consider five-star films, the top three for me are all five-star films, is 12 Years a Slave. Uh, my number three is Spotlight. Uh, but I just want to note, my top five are all five-star films for me. You know, I haven't actually rated Spotlight on Letterboxd yet. I'd have to watch it again and signify between that four and a half, five-star difference, which is critical. Um, my number two is Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. My number two is Parasite. Um, we both agree the best film to win Best Picture of the past decade and to me, one of the best films of all time, top 25, I'd say, as Pete said earlier, Moonlight. Yeah, uh, just a phenomenal feat in cinema. And, you know, all these films are great. We're not going to dock you if you say The King's Speech is the best. You know, th that might be a little unpopular opinion there, but, you know, uh, all great films nonetheless. And I'm glad we did this episode approaching award season. Yeah, I, I think it was a really cool idea. Um we didn't have a hidden gem for you this week or a fiery feces flick just because there was nothing bad enough to be a fiery feces flick, not even close to bad enough and hidden gem. I mean, these films all won best picture at the Academy Awards, so they're not really hidden in any sense of the word. Um, I think all of them, but one or two are available on streaming services, which we covered throughout the episode. Um, yeah, a good episode, good conversation. I highly recommend all of these films um, for cultural historical or emotional significance in their own respective ways uh stay tuned tonight for the golden globes it's pretty cool um although this episode will come out after the golden globes we hope that you follow up on the awards and maybe go back to our golden globes episode in which we predict each category um and yeah keep up on your cinema we'll, we'll see you guys next week uh splash of cinema i'm signing off john and i'm pete Thank you for listening. See you soon.